Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Well, Ben, we are back. We are covering 135 and 136 today. Well, 135 is a really solemn section. This is where we're covering the, the memorial of Joseph Smith and Hiram. It's written by John Taylor. This is one of the most quoted sections out of all of the Doctrine and Covenants. Mm-hmm. And very well known, there's just some beautiful, beautiful prose. I, I, he writes it so quickly afterwards, and it's just, it is so beautiful how he writes this. And we're going to have a lot to say about how, how it's written and about what it means to them and how this frames the narrative. I'll also go through and give some history, some context that leads up to Carthage a little bit, specifically talking about the Relief Society a little bit and about how, because that's, that's an unspoken history, I think, in a lot of ways about what part that played in polygamy and what, the Navio Expositor and what ultimately led him to Carthage and uh, him and Emma's strained relationship at the time. I think it's an interesting context that's not often talked about. And so we'll talk about that a little bit with 135. But then we get into 136 and this shift scares because this is now Brigham Young. Mm-hmm. And the saints are now moving west, and they're in Council Bluffs, Iowa. And 136 is a highly practical section. And if we just go through and reread it with kind of a lens of practicality, we might miss a lot of the really deeper meaning that's going on here, and and of really how this revelation is going to land for the saints going across the plains at the time. But it starts off highly practical with you know, let each company do this. And when the companies do that, let each company do that. And then this is what the company should do and let every man do this. And so it's highly prescriptive in, in very functional terms. But then towards the end of the section, it changes gears, it turns themes, and it really begins to give good, practical, solid advice, things that you should kind of already have in your mind and think, yeah, I should probably do that anyway. <laughs> uh, like, be diligent to preserve what you have. Don't be slothful and waste it. That's good practical advice as you're going across the plains. There's no Walmart, right? There's no, there's no general store that you're going to stop at. If if you break something due to your negligence or through not taking care of it, y- you're done. There's nothing there that's going to be able to fix it. And as you're moving west and you're taking everything that you own and that you can fit in either a wagon or you can carry or what will later be hand carts, right? You need to know exactly what you're taking and preserve all of it. But they don't stop at that kind of, at that kind of practical advice, but they begin to add a lot of rich meaning and modality to it, which will really give, I, I think it's going to give them a lot of uplift and a lot of things to think about and to give meaning to the, the persecution of, of traveling out there and, and the trials that they're going to have going out there. So yeah, there's gonna be a lot of stuff to talk about in 136. Yeah. I, 136 really becomes important for the saints to, to feel like there's some continuity here, right? You know, they lost Joseph. We can talk about the succession a little bit as well. 
Brigham Young coming in and taking the reins, as it were, them knowing that there's there's someone in charge, and we get this revelation that has this type of language. I can imagine at the time it was very helpful for them to to kind of feel that just as a, a matter of comfort, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. So when, you know, getting into section 135 here, I was actually talking with a scholar up at BYU-Idaho of history, and we were talking about her studies with with Mormon women. And then I only had a, about an hour to day break, and my wife and I sat down, and we actually started going through some of the Relief Society minutes of Nauvoo. And because and, and a couple of things that we talked about uh, in in the conversation that I had with this, with the scholar was about the beginning of the, of the Relief Society and about, and, and of Nauvoo Relief Society about how all this works. And there, I think there's a really lost history here because the, when, when the Relief Society is originally formed in 1842, it's this really interesting relationship because the Relief Society was actually an organic project. It started as an organic project because the men who were working on the Nauvoo temple were having a really hard time staying clothed. I mean, they were, they were literally wearing rags in a lot of the cases and threadbare clothes. And if the waist of your pants just breaks and you can't tie it off anymore and it keeps breaking, there's just not a whole lot you can do. You know, you know, you kind of end up with like a, a skirt of just rags. And, and so th- there's this, they were living in really poor, you know, in a lot of poverty. And so the, these women in Nauvoo on their own, they got up and they said, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to create our own group, our own administrative group where we can go through and clothe some of these men and, and to clothe the poor here in, in town. And they became really efficient and really functional really fast. Joseph kind of sees what's going on and he's, he's like, well, what we're going to do is we're going to bring you underneath the priesthood and we're going to give you a new order here. And they end up calling it the Relief Society. You know, he originally wanted to call it the Benevolence Society, but these kinds of women's organizations actually existed all over the country at the time. And there were a couple of them that had some bad reputations and, Emma didn't want to have any association to the concept of benevolence or benevolent society. Right. And she had proposed relief society, but then they had pushed back on her saying that the, you know, we don't want to call it a relief society because that only designates that we're only there to help people when they're in distress and we want to help everybody all the time. And then she pushed back and she says, well, aren't we always all in distress anyway? (laughs) And and they're like, well, they're like, we're home. We all beggars. Right. And they're like, okay, well, okay, we see your point. And so we ended up having the relief society and the relief society was originally given the primary task of not just administering, administering official, uh, like physical needs, but it was actually called as an organization to really help bolster and to take up, um, the morality of the community. Yeah. And so the virtue police. Yeah. It was, you know, that's for, 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 uh, for another term. Yeah. Morality police. And so when they started going around, now this was really advantageous to Emma because Emma had now come around to hearing all of the rumors about polygamy. And I think this a little bit kind of back, backlash, maybe what Joseph's uh, original concept or, or thought was that a relief society could be. So when he sets Emma in charge and gives her a lot of autonomy in the relief society to basically take care of the poor and to help administer and to take some of the strain off of the men with, with, you know, finding out who's, who's doing what and who's being virtuous, who's not. And the relief society is going to kind of fill that function. Emma immediately goes towards polygamy. 
and she immediately starts seeking out people who are, are in polygamy. And she became very efficient at it very fast. <laughs> and, and she's like, we're going to root this out from the, you know, this evil out from our people. And so all of a sudden, Joseph had just kind of created this thing. And now it was coming because polygamy being practiced was being done secretly. And nobody was, and so they had kind of started to leak out. And we talked about a couple weeks, we talked back with uh, 132 about how, uh, you know, like John C. Bennett, who was really brought into Joseph's confidence really quick there in Nauvoo. And as a lot of historians look back on John C. Bennett, they're like, we don't understand why he, he fell into Joseph's good graces as quickly as he did and as strong as he did. But he was not a man of good character. He had already left his wife and child before. He was uh, a bigamist in, in, in a, not in a, Joseph Smith kind of way. And he was womanizing and he had started to womanize and claim that Joseph had given him licensure to do so or, or to, to collect other wives for sexual gratification. And so when Joseph hears about what Bennett's doing, he's in a hard spot. Like we talked about last time, because he hasn't told jo- John C. Bennett about what's going on with polygamy, but yet Bennett is now claiming that Joseph gave him licensure to do this. Why would he even, why would he even claim that Joseph gave him licensure to have multiple wives or to have these kinds of relations with, with women? Um, where would that idea even come from? So Joseph's in this really sticky place with how to censure John C. Bennett without letting the cat out of the bag of what's going on with the polygamy. And so that eventually all gets worked out. And part of the Relief Society is to go through and to, get rid of all of the rumors that are surrounding kind of the immorality of the Bennett affairs. And, and so that, bec- and, and, and they actually do really good until finally Emma's kind of on this justice path of like, we're going to bring every, all of these people and we're going to bring all of these things to light and we're going to repent from it and we're going to move on and we're become a virtuous society. And she got so good at it so fast that even Joseph came out later and he's like, well, Maybe we don't need to like bring everybody to justice. Maybe, maybe we should be looking at mercy. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, and, and Emma's like, no, we're going to bring everybody to justice if they're, if they're going out there and, and sleeping around or having anything, any other relations except for their one wife. We're going to root out this evil from our people. Yeah. Emma was definitely very, very, uh, going back to her Puritan roots here. Yeah. Right. <laughs> very, very Puritan esque. And, you know, very much given a little bit of licensure there to to have a say so in how this was all going down, and so over this is in 1842, and by 1843, it's interesting. This is after we find out that Emma has now been kind of fully confronted with the realities of polygamy, and and now it's no longer a rumor. Now it's no longer something that she you know she can just think about or think as a rumor. Now she knows. And by the mid, mid of 1843, when 132 is handed over to her and, and other things, she ends up almost disappearing. She ends up getting sick for the latter end of the 1843. And she kind of disappears out of Nauvoo. And there's no record of her being involved in any of the Relief Society activities from all of 1843. And so she's intermittent all the way inside and out. And she kind of disappears. And a lot of historians have, have summarized that this may be a physical illness, but this also may be a lot of heartbreak as well until finally she comes back in 1844. And when she comes back in 1844, whatever happened in, you know, from, from the time of 132 through 1833, whatever happened, she's now on a very specific course to completely root out all aspects of polygamy out of Nauvoo. And she ends up teaming up with William W. Phelps, 
who ends up being W.W. Phelps, who writes Praise of the Man, um, the text that we know so well with Praise of the Man. And in it, she ends up writing a letter. And this letter becomes known as the Voice of Innocence. Now, when during this time also, there was a man by the, by the name of, uh, it's like Orsimus. I want to say it's Orsimus. Orsimus F. Bostwick. And Orsum F. S. Bostwick was a man who had basically, cl- you know, he had said a lot of really derogatory things about Hiram and exposing Hiram and, and perhaps many of his, his, the other wives that he had taken. And also that, um, Bostwick had also said that boasted that he could basically with a little money and, and a little bit of persuasion, he could sleep with any of the women in Nauvoo. And, and this was highly offensive, you know, because they treasured their virtue and they said, no, we're not going to, we wouldn't just, be, be succumb to this man. And so th- there were a lot of things being said against Bostwick until finally, um, this letter of this voice of innocence was a letter that Emma had written and helped and D- William W. Phelps had helped her write. And kind of unbeknownst to Joseph is uh, earlier on about March of 1844. So this is when Emma is finally back is that Joseph is now talking publicly against Bostwick and he turns to W.W. Phelps, who has been also been vocal against Bostwick. And he says, you know, brother Phelps, do you have anything to say? And W.W. Phelps gets up and he reads this letter from that he's co-authored with Emma. And it's a fascinating letter because while it is completely directed towards Bostwick, it's actually, there's, there's a lot of argument that is actually intended to be directed towards Joseph. And so it's, it's a very interesting way to be crafted as a way for Emma to publicly decry Bostwick directly publicly while supporting Joseph publicly, while also completely cutting out the legs from everything that they'd been doing with polygamy. And it, it was a very strategic move because what it did is, is it, it exposed polygamy, that it was a thing, but it also gave Joseph a way out because if they would have stopped polygamy and just decried the whole thing and stopped it right then and there, then it would have, you would have been able to deny the whole thing and the whole issue would have gone away. But if you would have kept polygamy going, then it would have been a major condemnation. Everybody knows about it now, and now you're going to have problems. So I hopefully I've explained that okay. Um, so when W.W. Phelps gets up and he reads the, this voice of innocence to 8,000 Latter-day Saints, at the very end of it, there is a very specific and a very explicit condemnation of polygamy and bigamy and that they need to be completely rooted out of our, of our society. And then what happened is over the next four, three or four days, Emma goes to a series of like four different meetings with the Relief Society where she reads this letter to directly to the women. And there's around 3,000 to 4,000, if I remember the number, three to 4,000 women that she goes to. And, she, and now she talks directly to the women and she reads this to, to them directly. And in the audience are many of the plural wives of Joseph Smith. Oh, yeah, most of them, right? And in fact, during it was really interesting is that during the Relief Society, I forgot her name. It was one of Joseph Smith's plural wives had become one of Emma's closest confidants, but Emma didn't know she was a plural wife of Joseph yet. And so when Emma was trying to find the polygamists, the polygamist wives to basically persecute people or, or the husbands or the people who are practicing polygamy, this other wife of Joseph would say, oh, Emma, I don't think we should go prosecute that person. I think they're okay. 
And so she started to steer Emma away from the people practicing polygamy. <laughs> so there were people in Relief Society in the, in the organization that were already Joseph Smith's wives that Emma didn't know about that had started to detour Emma away from the women and men who were practicing polygamy. And so because of this, this letter, and I'm going to read some, some excerpts here just to kind of, kind of give an, uh, a, a review. I'd pulled it up. We discussed whether or not this was Joseph Smith or Brigham Young. And as far as I can tell, I looked it up here and, and I sent it over to you, Ben, but it looks like this, this is Joseph. Or it's at least recorded in Joseph Smith's discourse from, from May 26th, 1844. So you got to understand this letter was given in, in March of 1844. And by two months later, because this blows the, the lid off of polygamy and, and makes this in, and saying, Hey, this whole thing is really being practiced. We're decrying it, but now polygamy is exposed. And by W.W. Phelps and by Emma. And if they get rid of polygamy, everything's good to go. If they keep doing polygamy and supporting it, now they're going to have problems. And so Joseph is actually kind of almost throws Emma under the bus later on because in, on May 26, 1844, it says in, uh, in the Joseph Smith papers, it says he addressed the saints in a long sermon describing the hypocrisy of his traducers and noted that he, quote, Never had any fuss with these men until after the female relief society brought out the paper against adulterers and adulteresses. By May 26, 1844, Joseph is now citing and kind of condemning that letter that that is what brought about the problems. And so I'm going to read just a little bit of the, uh, list a little bit of, uh, of that because it's just an interesting, an interesting way that she ends up writing. It's a very powerful way and you can almost sense her pain. In, in, in it. So I hope I do it some justice as I read it. But it says, from Nauvoo, the corruption of wickedness which manifested itself in the horrible deformity on the trial of Os- Orsimus F. Bostwick last week for slandering President Hiram Smith and the widows of the city of Nauvoo has awakened all kindly feelings of the female benevolence, compassion, and pity for the softer sex to spread forth the mantle of charity to shield the characters of virtuous mothers, wives, and daughters of Nauvoo from the blasting breath and poisonous touch of debauchees, vagabonds, and rakes who have jammed themselves into our city to offer strange fire at the shrines of infamy, disgrace, and degradation, as they and all their kindred spirits have done in all the great cities throughout the world, corrupting their way on the earth and bringing women, poor, defaceless women, to wretchedness and ruin. Wow. As such ignoble blood now begins to stain the peaceable habitations of the saints and to taint the pure air of the only city in the world that pretends to work righteousness in union, as as the sine qua non for happiness, glory, and salvation, and as such, ungodly wretches burning or smarting with the sting of their own shame have doubtless transported with them some of the miserable dupes of their licentiousness for the purpose of defiling the fame of, his, of this godly city, mildewing the honesty of our mothers, blasting the chastity of widows and wives, and corrupting the virtue of our unsuspecting daughters. It becomes us in defense of our rights for the glory of our mothers and fathers, for the honor of our mothers, for the happiness of our husbands, and for the welfare of our dear children, to rebuke such an outrage upon the sanctity of society, to thwart such a death blow at the hallowed marriage covenant, and to ward off such poison daggers from the hearts of our innocent daughters. For blast them of the honor of Nauvoo, and write in with incredible ink upon every such villain. That's the opening statement. (laughs) Right. And, and it just goes from there. Now, as I said, this was specifically and publicly directed at Bostwick. 
But this is actually directed at Joseph. This is supposed to be directed at Joseph. It's supposed to be directed at Joseph and, and, and the whole practice of polygamy. Cause that, it's the polygamy debate that she's saying is this, this outrage or this, this thing that has thwarted and has blown, blown at the hallowed marriage covenant. And so at the very end of it, it's really fascinating because this is where she gives Joseph an out. She says, wherefore, it's resolved unanimously that Joseph Smith, the mayor of the city, be tendered our thanks for the able and manly manner in which he defended injured innocence in the late trial of O.F. Bostwick for slandering President Hiram Smith and almost all the women of the city. You see what she did there? <laughs> by, by pointing directly at Joseph and saying, we give him our absolute thanks for slandering the practice of Bostwick. In, in everything that he's been doing. It, it's a way of slander, showing that Joseph is acting publicly against this polygamy narrative. Until finally she concludes, resolved unanimously that while we render credence to the doctrines of Paul, that neither the man is without the woman, neither the woman without the man and the Lord, yet we raise our voice and hands against John C. Bennett's spiritual wife system as a scheme of prolificates to seduce women, and they that harp upon it wish to make it popular for the convenience of their own cupidity. Wherefore, while the marriage bed undefiled is honorable, let polygamy, bigamy, fornication, adultery, and prostitution be frowned out of the hearts of honest men to the drop in the gulf of fallen nature, where the worm dieth not and the fire is qu not quenched. And let all the saints say amen. And when W.W. Phelps had said this, the record shows that the audience said amen twice. Amen and amen. So this is really interesting that Emma is now bringing this to the forefront. Emma's now bringing this out as, as a condemnation of polygamy and bigamy and fornication and prostitution. She's lumping these four things all into the same categories. Then she's willing to take the spiritual wife system that has been, it was introduced by Joseph as spiritual wifery and then redefined as the new and everlasting covenant, but to take the spiritual wife system and then hang it basically on the head of John C. Bennett away from Joseph. And then to hang all of the other things on Bostwick, giving Joseph an out if he chooses it. And so then, and then so that, that's really kind of what ends up being later on is they didn't give up polygamy. They end up doubling down on it. The Nauvoo Expositor comes out on June 7th. They end up destroying and then it kind of exposes there, there's some truth to it. There's a lot of not truth to it. There's a lot of uh, libel. And so then the, the Joseph and the Nauvoo Council end up voting to destroy the printing press and the, and what they call the libel of the printing press. And that's what lends them in Carthage. But then again, rereading what Joseph said, that on May 26, 1844, speaking of that letter from Emma, that he never had any fuss with any man until the Female Relief Society brought out the paper against adulterers and adulteresses. He cites that as the, as the catalyst for why this all happens. So it's just, it's a really interesting, fascinating thing that's going on at the time in seeing the, the pain that Emma's going through, the chances that she's personally trying to give to Joseph. And then during this time also, from the time that she, she stands up in those letters, Joseph, this then disbands the Relief Society. And they, they had what was called the Quorum of the Anointed at the time, but it was, it was a, a very select group of men and women, a lot of men, a few women. And the Quorum of the Anointed released and, and let out all of the women. And then they kind of reformed and that's what became the Council in 50. And that's the group that Joseph trusted, that the men he trusted to go out and, and to basically stump for president. 
So it's just, it's a very interesting time in Nauvoo. It's a very interesting time to see how these, these feelings and these emotions are, are changing. And one of the reasons why I wanted to bring that up was just, I, I think really for my own personal reason is because for my, for the longest time, I, I really heavily blamed Emma and I looked really negatively on Emma for being the one who basically made sure that Joseph's posterity never made it out to Salt Lake. <laughs> and there was a lot of judgment in my heart that way. And I think in, in a lot of ways, by recognizing the pain that she was going through and what, and what she was doing and how she was enduring it, um, it's given me a lot of moment for grace in my own life and recognizing how these times come along when life just throws things at you. And you don't know how to deal with it. And Emma was really trying, I think, to re- kind of regain regain a certain amount of normalcy in her life. And this is the way that she went about it. And it just, the whole thing ended up flying apart. And that's one of the things that just, for me, it became a very interesting contextual example of how and what 135 became. Yeah, I mean, it, it's important to give more context to 135. When we talk about church history, we we often really sort of uh, dab at things like the Nauvoo Expositor and, and Pilgrimage and stuff like this, but we don't build the the sequence of events and how things sort of unfolded such that it makes sense, oh, that Joseph is in Carthage. Um, a lot of times I think the narrative goes such that, oh, he's in Carthage, um, you know, for the same reasons that he was... Uh, in Liberty Jail or the same reasons, you know, that he got arrested all the other times. And, you know, each of these have have their own reasons and purposes. And, you know, the reason that Carthage ended up the way it did, um, as opposed to, you know, how Liberty Jail did, for example, um, really lends itself to what is going on here historically. And um, there's a lot of reasons. You can point to uh, polygamy and the fallout from that as this main catalyst, but there's other things that are going on that really uh, rile people up. Um, you know, a lot of the political stuff that's going on and the political involvement of Nauvoo and and the city council and then Joseph Smith and and all that sort of stuff um, that definitely adds fuel to the fire as well. This mob that shows up to kill Joseph and Hiram um, definitely uh, wouldn't have had near as many people in it if it weren't for all these other things that are going on, right? They, they were really able to, to rally against Joseph Smith because there were many grievances that they, they felt they had against him. And definitely there was the, the polygamy thing per se, and then they were able to garner support from all of the people that were upset about his political movements. And then all of that sort of was sparked. It was very dry, right? very dry tinder, got sparked by the destruction of the press because this was was used as the sort of the the pretext to say, oh, you know, he's anti-free speech. Um, and and this is a very, very serious thing in the day. And I, I would venture to say that it, it was taken even more serious then than it, than it is now. 
You know, somebody yeah, I would agree. somebody goes and, and tries to like, you know, burn a paper or stop someone from being, you know, there's going to be a bit of a fuss and there's going to be a discussion about it, this or that. But like, this was seen as seditious. This was seen as like, you destroy a press, like, like this is murder almost like this is a, this is a capital offense to do this. And so um, I don't know that we, uh, we, contextualize that event enough in history to explain why people were so upset is upset enough to kill him over this. Um, and obviously if it, if it were any one of these things in isolation, it may not have happened, but the combination of all these definitely was more than enough energy to create this mob that, that would have, have killed Joseph Smith. It, once you see that, um, it makes sense. And that's not, obviously I'm not sitting here justifying it or anything, but you know, you understand the historical context a lot more and you, you get into the minds and thoughts of the people at the time and you see the dynamic and, and see what, what really uh, Joseph Smith was dealing with at the time and how all these other people kind of got caught up in it. You know, moving into to section 135 here, one of the things that that kind of stands out and could spark a, a broader discussion is just the use of the term martyrdom here, right? And we've we've actually talked about martyrs and martyrdom quite a bit in these podcasts. It's it's not obvious that in the in the full historical and etymological use of the word that that, that uh, martyr really fits here, but. The reason it's used and and used successfully is uh, because of because of who's using it, right? And that's John Taylor. John Taylor, this section is is written beautifully, and his case is made uh, very eloquently. He there's several things that he does in his explanation here that that are very interesting to me, and um, one of the things he talks about when in verse two here. He says, uh, John Taylor and Willard Richards are two of the 12, were the only persons in the room at the time. Um, the former was wounded in a savage manner with four balls, but has since recovered. The latter, though the, through the providence of God, escaped without even a hole in his rope. Okay, so just in the previous verse, we're told that Hiram gets shot four times, Joseph gets shot four times, and John Taylor gets shot four times. Now, in actuality, I think Joseph got shot a lot more than four times because he jumped out of the window and there were a lot of people around that wanted to get a chance to shoot Joseph Smith. And so um, he may have been dead by the four, fourth ball, but um, there were certainly, certainly more after that. But what's interesting about John Taylor, how he says this here, though, is he's saying, you know, Hiram and then and Joseph and him, you know, he speaks about himself in the third person, all got shot four times. And you've got Joseph dies, Hiram dies, but John Taylor survives. So this is a this is a very uh, fascinating way of him claiming authority as a witness to the martyrdom, right? Which 
we've got cognates there with with martyr is actually uh, the word means witness. And so we've we've got John Taylor actually putting himself, you know, rightly so, obviously he was there and witnessed, really witnessed the whole thing in that place of authority to make these statements. And what really seals that authority is the fact that he received the same number of shots as Hiram and Joseph, right? And so that that is is really fascinating to me that that there would be that that statement there. I don't think it's just coincidental that they that he says they all got shot four times. I think he's tying his authority to make these statements about Joseph and Hiram to the fact that he was shot the same number of times as they were, but God preserved him in order to make this statement. Right? And uh, so I think there's something there to that. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. I, because we're looking at, at the literary way that he's writing that. Now, I want to go back a little bit because, Ben, you, I think you brought up a really great point in, you know, because I, I spent a good chunk here talking about, about the polygamy factor. And you brought up the really great point about him running for president because Joseph is running for president at this time of the United States. And he doesn't really have a chance of winning, but he does at this particular election, because it's so close, have a chance of possibly being that third party who, you know, kind of like the, if anybody remembers Ross Perot, Perot. in (laughs) the early 90s, uh, being able to kind of sway the election one way or another, or being able to be, be able to cast, you know, who gets to be able to get picked or chosen. He does have a little bit of that. And so even though he has really no chance of winning, he might be able to sway the election. Uh, and, and so there's a lot of, a lot of things we could talk to and unfold there. There's also the Masonic connection. There were a lot of people because of Joseph's Masonic connections. When the Masonic Lodge was, was given in Nauvoo, there were, it, it wasn't exactly filed and given, given licensure to, to exist in the normal way. And it was, it was very much rushed. And so there were a lot of people, a lot of Masons who thought that maybe, Joseph wasn't a real Mason. They took the, you know, their, their Mason, Masonic oaths very seriously. And they didn't think that he was, he was necessarily a real Mason or that he had done this. Plus that when you, when you, when they saw that he had stopped Masonry and that he had, he had converted a lot of these ideas and experiences from Masonry into their, into their endowment ceremonies and the rites and rituals there, they thought it was a, they thought it was a distortion and a perversion of the well, Masonic. And he was giving them to women. And to women. Yeah, that exactly. Was the thing. That was a thing too. And so there's so many moving parts to this conversation. And I really like that you brought up that we could have really focused on, on any number of these because every single one of these conversations really gives a new flavor. And especially as we brought that into martyrdom, because we really spent a lot of time with, with the concept and the word of martyrdom back in Ammonihah. When we, when we did Ammonihah in the Book of Mormon, because mm-hmm. that's one of the few times, if only the only time that I know of, that they actually talk about martyrdom in the Book of Mormon. And it's a very unique case because martyrdom and the etymology of it goes back to the this word by which witness is is borrowed from it. So whenever we talk about a witness of Jesus Christ, it's the same root word by which martyrdom. It, it also translates into into the I think it's testimony comes from the Latin, but it's the same concept. So testament, testimony, witness, martyrdom are all three talking largely about the same thing. When you witness. It's, it's usually that you witness with your own life. And by witnessing with your own life, you, you demonstrate that what you're saying, you're dying in the name of Christ. You're dying in the name of your cause. That's the seal and, with the blood thing here that John Taylor's talking about. 
Right, exactly. And, and, and what's interesting here about, and I love, I really, really love that, that you talked about how they, how, how John Taylor's seeing this, how the saints are seeing this. Because it's arguable, and I have a very, I, and I, I say it right out the gate. I know it. I understand it. I've got a lot of pushback from it. I accept it. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not entirely sold that in a lot of ways, and I know Hugh Nibley would really disagree with me, and I know so many Mormon scholars would completely vehemently disagree with me, and I'm okay with that. But I don't know necessarily that Joseph fits the complete bill of a martyr. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, he was fighting back at Carthage. He had his own gun. He was fighting back in Carthage. Um, the mob rushing the jail wasn't necessarily over his religious convictions. He's not dying for his religious convictions on the hill of his religion. The mob that's running after him is almost all primarily motivated by the anger of the, of the, the printing press, the anger of him running for, 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 uh, for office and the anger of the Masonicness. And those three things have very little to do with the religious truth claims of Mormonism. Like, like to be up there and actually like, like a Benedi, right? To, to be up there delivering a message of God and to deliver your message and then to be killed for that message. Um, where he just accepts it. He's like, if God kills me, then God kills me. I'm not going to fight back. I'm not going to do that. A Benedi in the Book of Mormon seems to fit that, that more than what Joseph did. But see, that, that in itself is not important. And, and it's not important because of exactly what you said. It doesn't matter if it's important, if that's the real thing or not. It matters that this is how we talk about it. Well, it matters that, that that's the way that John Taylor thought about it. And then all of his religious community thought about it. And, and because that that's the way that they thought about it, you know, they're going to act that way about it. So, yeah. And they form the identity around it that way. And as you said, Ben, this is just beautiful, beautiful prose. And, and, and of how he's writing this. And you can see, I mean, he's just a good writer anyway, but the love that he has for Joseph really comes through, throughout in the pages. Joseph is deeply loved. It's one of those things, Joseph was, was a very loyal individual. Um, man, he had a lot of his own faults, but one of his great virtues was his loyalty. And loyal to a fault. And in fact, when, when people fell out of his loyalty, another one of his virtues was his ability to reconcile and have that person come back into, into friendship with him. And, and not just friendship, but he, he, he trusted them. It's almost as if like all, everything is gone and he trusts them again. And he, he really endeared the saints to him that way. And so when, when you see these, uh, when you see these men and about how much they love Joseph, uh, it's just, it, it invokes a feeling that of just how much love came because of his loyalty and of what that virtue can be able to, to inspire in people to be able to write something like this. I, I, I nobody's ever going to write this for me. <laughs> this is not, this is not going to be my eulogy, right? I might, you know, I might. Number one, it I, depends how you die. <laughs> it depends on how you die. But for as much as I am loved by my family and friends, and I, I, number one, I haven't accomplished what Joseph has accomplished. I'm not comparing myself to Joseph here by any stretch. But what I'm saying is that this sparks a particular type of identity in how they saw him then and then how they remembered him afterwards. Yeah. And regardless of how someone would feel about Joseph Smith's claims, um, 
you know, John Taylor even makes the point here that the the things that he accomplished from a religious and institutional perspective um, are really outstanding, right? Like they're um, uh, scholars definitely all acknowledge that you know his ability to form this religious identity and come up with <laughs> this scripture that is recorded and handed down and 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 forms this community is um, is quite unique it's it's rare right in in the way that it was done and how it had survived and per- perpetuated in his his charisma and ability to to do that um, regardless of the actual claims it, you know is definitely uh, recognized as unique. Yeah. And, and I think in a way that, you know, there's a quote that's often used against Joseph and I, I think it's often taken out of context, you know, when he, and it's in the history of the church volume six, where it says where Joseph is noted to have said, and it's recorded in 1884. So it's one of those things that historians have to grapple with these, these late quotes that end up popping up from, from Joseph. But where he is noted to have said, I have more to boast of than any man ever had. I am the only man that has ever been able to keep a whole church together since the days of Adam. A large majority of the whole have stood by me. Neither Paul nor John, Peter, nor Jesus ever did it. I boast that no man ever did such a work as I. The followers of Jesus ran away from him, but the Latter-day Saints have never ran away from me yet. Now, that's in the History of the Church, Volume 6, pages 408 and 409. But I think that that verse and or that scripture it sounds very prideful it sounds super prideful (laughs) it sounds super prideful right even more than jesus but in a certain sense i think this is uh, kind of the 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 flavor (sighs) when historians have to look back on this i I think of john um, thomas jefferson a lot when he writes the declaration of independence um i mean this is anybody who's ever read john locke's second treatises on government knows that <laughs> the Jefferson knows the second treatise on government very well. And Jefferson was even accused of plagiarism in, in, in writing the declaration of independence and lifting it from Locke's second treatise. But when pressed on the issue, John Locke had said, I didn't turn to any text when I wrote it. I just expressed the sentiment and the, the feelings, the emotions and the rhetoric that we talk about daily. Right. As if to say that that, that that this had just become the rhetoric of the American Revolution. He didn't have to turn to John Locke anymore. It was no longer almost as this is no longer John Locke's it's words. In the this is domain now. because it's right. It's becomes common common knowledge, common belief, common sentiment. Yeah, right. And I think in a lot of ways, when we look at, I mean, because I've looked at the the apostasy narratives. And I've looked at Jesus and I'm like, you know, maybe Jesus could have done a little bit better. His church literally, as far as the LDS narrative is concerned, that the great apostasy happened when the priesthood was dissolved and the priesthood was dissolved after the original 12. So Christ's original church didn't last a generation. And so you can, you can see that the comparison here seems bombastic. And maybe, and maybe there is a certain level to that. But then I, I think your point, Ben, is where this really kind of comes home. Because then we have John Taylor who's been like, yeah, but look what he did. It's like, it's like they're wondering what they've done and how they've been able to accomplish these things in the short space of only these few years. Look at what he's been able to accomplish. 
He's brought forth the Book of Mormon. He's, he's, he's endured all of these things, right? He's had these revelations. They've spread missionaries everywhere. Um, and so in this way that we, we haven't ever seen this done before. And yet it, there's this hope. And so you can see that it's a, it's a, it's a reiteration of hope that with all of the, the problems that you've had and all of the trials you've had to endure, now you can see that they're trying to, to give rebirth to hope. And part of that comes in, in kind of counting your many blessings, as it were, that when you've come to those many trials, you recount all of the things that you've been able to accomplish to be able to press forward. And I, th- and I think in a lot of ways, as soon as we get into 136, we'll be able to kind of see that on the second half of how they're building the modality there. You can see them trying to re- recharge and reintegrate hope back into the narrative by recounting where they've been in kind of a trajectory and where they're going. Right. Another thing that sort of going on with this section, some other things that, that uh, stood out to me are in these uh, this last verse 7, because... Um, it's very interesting, the placement of this section, 135. So it's right after 134, right? Duh. So 134, <laughs> as we talked about last time, is this statement of belief on government. And and it's sort of the, uh, sort of the, the Mormon creed about republicanism, so to speak. And, but in, in historical context at this time, so 134 is, um, is written and presented in 1835. Okay. So the saints are going through some stuff in Missouri, but they've not gone through the worst in Missouri yet. And they've not gone through Nauvoo yet. And Joseph hasn't been killed yet. And so then we get here to 135 and they've gone through all of this. Um, They have pretty well lost their trust in the quote unquote American form of government. Right. They, have pretty well lost their confidence that it can um, can provide them with the protection and peace and and secure their rights as it promised. Uh, they don't really, uh, um, as a whole, as a group, believe that anymore. And we see that in it coming out in all kinds of ways. And and one of the ways here in this section we see this is is John Taylor. Uh, uh, really accuses places the blame at the on the state of Illinois here. He says um, that the conspiracy of traitors and wicked men, their innocent blood on the floor of Carthage jail is a broad seal affixed to Mormonism that cannot be rejected by any court on earth, and their innocent blood on the escutcheon of the state of Illinois. I had to look up that word. It just means like coat of arms or seal or something like that you know so the the symbol of the state of illinois in other words the state uh, with the broken faith of the state as pledged by the governor is a witness of the truth of the everlasting gospel that all the world cannot impeach and their innocent blood on the banner of liberty and on the magna carta of the united states is an ambassador for the religion of jesus christ so in other words here John Taylor is is positing that not only has the state of Illinois tainted the whole idea of uh, of the Republican government or that that they could provide justice, you know that 
Um, but this goes all the way to the government of the United States, the Constitution, right? Their, their confidence that the, uh, the people who serve these institutions in these institutions are able to provide the protections that they promise, like uh, I talked about before, is, is completely gone. And John Taylor sees as incontrovertible evidence of that the martyrdom of Joseph and Hiram, because these were innocent men and this should not have happened. And if anybody could have stopped it from happening, it should have been the state of Illinois or at least the United States. And they weren't capable of this, which basically, um, you know, it, it undermines their authority. He's really jabbing at the authority of the state and of the United States as a whole here just based on the murder of Joseph Smith. Um, it's quite a statement, especially in just in the, uh, the placement of the sections here, <laughs> that we have this statement right after we have section 134. <laughs> yeah, indeed. In fact, even with, uh, in addition to that and to support that, uh, it was called the Oath of Vengeance, but it was, it was a temple covenant that was included in, into many of the, especially there in Nauvoo, and it, and it went from about 1844 until the 1920s. Um, I've read some reports that ended up even as late as the 19, early 1930s, but from what, what I've read, it's mostly in the 1920s, where there were, there was a, an oath, one of the, one of, an oath that was made in the temple to basically never cease to pray to God to avenge the blood of the prophets on the, on the American nation. And that you would teach this to your children down to the third and fourth generations. And so there was this oath of vengeance upon America. Um, that, that was made as part of, as part of the endowment. And so it's, it's interesting about how they incorporate this into their, into the, into the most sacred aspect of their lives at the time. And it was really after, you know, the, the Smoot hearings and, and, and this actually ended up leaking out and became a really big issue into, into politics when these Latter day Saints ended up having public office. And there were people who didn't think that they could seat these men in public office because of the ritual oaths that they had taken for blood basically to be spilt and rendered upon the nation for the prophets. And it was really ambiguous about what this meant. And, and that's kind of part of some of the ambiguity of it um, that allowed them to be able to, 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 to take it away and to be able to move past that. But just like you said, Ben, it's, it's how they started talking about it. It's, it's from 134 right here into these right there into these moments, this becomes a central part of their entire identity, this this vengeance back for this nation. Um, I, I read several, uh, I was reading several books a couple years ago on Joseph F. Smith, who was, you know, the son of, of Hiram, and his hatred for the United States. Um, I mean, <laughs> obviously, but he, but he did. The, the, the Latter-day Saints looked at the United States as the cause of why Joseph and Hiram were martyred. It was a complete reversal of nationalism. Nationalism had failed them. Their whole identity for, as the embodiment of the American Republic, of, like what Marquis Peterson later said, that the Constitution was made to be able to make space for the restoration of the gospel, and that, and that's the reason why we have the Constitution was because of the, of the restoration of the gospel, but that the saints from about, from 1844, until well into the 1930s, even while they started to try to make nice, and they and it's been said by a few historians I've read that they tried to out America all other Americans 
you know, as they, in the 1890s and the 1900s, as they're starting to come into the, they've been ostracized for so long that they're wanting to come into this country. But yet it's this really interesting, tenuous relationship when this country that they've hated for so long, going back to these, they still have these oaths that they're making against this country, but yet they're trying to court this nation and become this nation and out America, all the other Americans in becoming and forming that new American identity and kind of taking back the original American Republican idea. Is it, it's fascinating to see in church history, the ebbs and flows of this, of this church and state dynamic and the narratives and the identities that they are diverging from and they're converging with and that they reject and that they end up accepting and that they, they, they take off themselves and they put on themselves. And it's been this dance since the very beginning between the American Constitution and the American government and, and the Latter-day Saints. And I, and I love that you did that. I love the juxtaposition there that you brought out between 134 and 135. It's, it, that's, that's a fascinating juxtaposition. Well, it's a, it's a perfect context then to move into 136, because what are they doing? I mean, the main reason that they're leaving, it, it, there, I will say, there is a time after Joseph's death that they the saints did feel like they might be able to stay in Nauvoo. Um, but that time is very short. And they do pretty quickly realize it's not going to work out. And they've already been, you know, laying plans to to figure this out. Joseph was already laying plans for this before his death, and the plan is originally was something like California, or they looked at at Oregon, and anyway, there was there was all kinds of different stuff. But um, Te- you know, Texas, Brigham Young, Texas. Texas. In fact, yep. they, they invited him yep. down to Sam Texas. Houston. Yep. There was all kinds of different things that they explored and avenues they were were taking. And um, really, they they didn't decide to stop and stay in Utah until pretty late. You know, like they were really going to go to California. They decided to just uh, just stop in Utah. But what what's interesting about it at this time is is because of all this that's going on, they don't trust the U.S. government anymore. They want to leave the United States, and that's their intention. Their intention is to leave the United States. They don't feel the loyalty to it um, quite the same anymore. And so uh, the timing that works out that as they leave the United States, the (laughs) Mexican-American War breaks out. We have the Mormon Battalion, you know, that marches down and they end up in in Utah, which has just been ceded from from Mexico to <laughs> to the United States. So they were trying to leave, and then they end up just you know right back in, <laughs> right back into the kettle. They do, even though it is technically has become a, a territory of the United States, they do get quite a bit of autonomy for for a while here. Uh, but yeah, everything ends up having to change. Um, the pressure of American expansion and culture uh, presses um, on the church, and they they end up having to change a lot of things. Um, you know, the big one a big one is is polygamy. Another is the way that they interact politically. Um, you know, you talked about some of the the oaths they made, their attitude, um, everything. And so, but but at this time, you know, they. 
they are really feeling betrayed by the United States government and the state of Illinois. And so their intention is to to get away from that. They are the people of Israel. They're fleeing bondage. Um, The Lord is going to lead them into the wilderness and set them up as a free people. Right. This is the whole narrative here. And it makes 136 make so much sense when you see what's going on with the saints. When you see Brigham Young come in and give this revelation that has them organize into companies of, of 10 and 50 and 10, right? And, and a lot of this is patterned after exactly how the Old Testament had the children of Israel traveling in the wilderness. In fact, you get tons of language that's straight out of the Old Testament. The feel and cadence of it is very Exodus-type stuff, giving them certain statutes and judgments and commandments and covenants to follow and practice as, as they go along their way. That really is the feel and flow of, of 136 in that context. Yeah, and before I forget, you know, I was I was going to say it earlier, but I forgot. Um, if anyone is ever interested in reading anything about Joseph Smith's presidency and his bid for presidency, there's a brand new book out uh, that came out last year, actually called Joseph Smith for, for President, hmm. and it's written by Spencer McBride. And I, I've had the opportunity of talking with uh, Spencer a few times in a, in a few uh, group Zooms, uh, Zoom meetings. Absolutely brilliant scholar. He was worked for the Joseph Smith Papers. Um, there's, a, I think it was even number one on, uh, on certain lists, but he had a podcast about Joseph Smith and, oh, for the Joseph Smith papers for, and I don't know if it was with the Maxwell Institute or who it was through, but, uh, it just, he's a, he's a really great scholar. So right now I just looked it up on Amazon cause I'm always checking the price of books, but you can buy it brand new for nine, $9 for nine forty two right now. So if anybody's uh, interested, maybe it'll go up by the time we release this. But we don't get any royalties it. off of this. <laughs> I remember, but I, I no, we don't get any royalties <laughs> off it. It'd be kind of nice. Maybe we should talk with him. But uh, I, when I did talk with uh, when I did talk with Spencer in the meeting, I asked him a question because this is really a, a fascinating time. And you brought it up, Ben, that Joseph was already looking west. Like there were already some plans made, right? Yeah. But yet he's still running for president back east, and it's like, what's going on? And I yeah. asked him because he's, he's, he's hedging one of the, all his bets. <laughs> he's one of the guys to know. And, and Spencer's just like, he like shrugs. He's like, I don't know. <laughs> like, no, nobody <laughs> Wait, knows. If you don't know. <laughs> like, if you don't know. Yeah. And it's just one of those things that's an anomaly. We just aren't going to know. And, uh, and so these are some of the ambiguities that we have in talking about Joseph. This is a really big question. Why is he playing both sides? And it kind of looks like that's one of the, that's one of the things that a lot of scholars land on is he was playing both sides. Um, he was just throwing a lot of mud at the wall to see what sticks, um, in, in kind of helping in the cause of the saints and doing everything that he could. So like leave no stone unturned as it were. Right. Well, I mean, part of running for president would be that, you know, you kind of get, you get a little bit more of a, uh, a pulpit to speak from, right? Try to have your cause heard. And I, and in a lot of his statements about, what he was doing and 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 the people that were supporting him that was like his part of his platform was you know getting redress for the wrongs done against the saints so a lot of that there was trying to bring national attention to the situation of the saints so yeah 
You know, see, this is another reason why I don't get on Amazon, because now I'm looking at all the other, like, customer reviews on other books, and I'm, I'm seeing, like, Kingdom of Nauvoo by Ben Park, yeah. Terrible Revolution by Christopher Blythe. Those are both great books. Awesome. If it, yeah. They're both fantastic. So if, if anybody's really up for reading some really good stuff about Joseph in this time, um, Kingdom of Nauvoo is fantastic. That's what we read from for 132. Ben Park did some just some fantastic research for that. And then uh, I've talked with Christopher Blythe before, and he's he's just such a great, a great and nice guy. But, there, but with uh, and a great scholar with Terrible Revolution. So check those out too. Those are really great books too. I, I get I occasionally people ask me for book recommendations because I'm, I'm in books a lot. So yeah, I'm trying to be better at that. So yeah, there's uh, there's those two recommendations. But yeah, I like what you, you were saying there, Ben, about moving west because Brigham had talked with Sam Houston. Sam Houston's like, oh, hey, and by the way, we're going to be a state soon. And Brigham Young's like, well, nope. And so there's like, well, let's yeah. look at Oregon. <laughs> well, that's not what we and want. They're like, <laughs> and they're like, we're going to be a state soon. And then they're like, no, that's not what we want. <laughs> yeah. So everywhere they look, there's going to be a state soon. And I just, that's one of the funniest things I think ever is they are literally walking out to the middle of nowhere. And as they're walking out, it becomes U.S. territory. Yeah. I'm like, oh, the irony. But one of the things I wanted to focus on was, you know, we've already kind of addressed on it, and you brought it up with the saints see themselves as modern day, like a modern day ex- exodus. They're participating in a modern day exodus. And in fact, history books, secular history books, frame Brigham Young as the American Moses. Right. Th- this kind of, and, and this isn't unique to the Latter day Saints. Uh, you know, anybody who's ever studied uh, the slave, you know, the black church. And about how and how the slaves saw themselves, and as they came into Christianity, they also started seeing themselves in terms. And they have they have songs of the South that were were framed in in terms of of being the children of Israel oh, and right. being free. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that that narrative, that Exodus narrative, is is yeah one of the most powerful in all of Western religious culture for sure. Right. Yeah. So the you know the Latter Day Saints are donning it, but this isn't unique to the Latter Day Saints. But man, it, it sure fits their uh, their their paradigm. As we talked about before a little bit in verse twenty seven, it's fascinating how Brigham's giving them just random practical advice, practical advice that you should absolutely know. Thou shalt be diligent, he says, in preserving what thou hast, that thou mayest be a wise steward. Awesome. <laughs> Don't break your stuff. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like that should go without saying, but I love where he follows it up. He says, for it is a free gift of the Lord, thy God, and thou art his steward. Now there's a lot of stuff we can unpack from here, but the free gift from the Lord, it's this free offering. You may have worked for it. You may have bought for it. You may have purchased or traded for it, but it's a free gift from God. It's not really yours to begin with. It's God's. So treat what God has given you with respect. It's 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 a completely different modality than basically walking out into the wilderness with this is mine, and I'm going to do with it what I want. Sure. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, if you can imagine being Brigham Young and looking at the 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 shift in mentality that these saints have to have, and I begin to see that a lot of 136 is you've got to start reshaping the modality of how people look at the most basic things. And so he starts with the most basic of like, like the most basic assumptions. And then he subtly changes it into a new modality. Here's your ownership. Don't break your stuff. And people are like, I wasn't planning on breaking my stuff anyway. But also it's not yours. 
it's God's and you're a steward over it. Take care of what God has given you. Yeah. It's it's, a, it's brilliant how, how this works. So we end up down in the, in the second. If thou art merry, praise the Lord with singing, with music, with dancing, with prayer, and with praise and thanksgiving. In other words, if you're feeling good, feel good. Express it. Live in it. Revel in it. Have an experience. Of all the things we can say about Brigham Young, and my goodness, there's so many things we could say about Brigham Young. What's fascinating is he came from a Methodist background. And say whatever Methodists will about dancing and these kinds of things and praise and music and singing and dancing. When he went on a mission to the, to Europe or over, over to England, he targeted a lot of the Methodist locations because evangelicalism was, was this new flourishing thing in the second great awakening from about 1890 to about 1930, 1940. Part of this evangelicalism is that when you are converted to be a true evangelical, like, like Methodists and Baptists, to be a true evangelical, you have to have a conversion experience. Kind of like Lamoni in the Book of Mormon, where you like fall down dead for three days and you wake up prophesying of God, or you end up, you just have this overwhelming, like, like just completely transformative, otherworldly experience that, that kind of renders you incapable of, of anything. You just, you have this overcoming of the spirit. And so this is your evangelical. This means you've been born again. And Brigham Young, coming from a Methodist background as a Latter-day Saint, he goes to Methodists in England, and in England, they're much more proper. It's called high church versus America, low church. Low church right. was anybody could become a minister so long as you could, you could galvanize and get a crowd going. Over in England, the same Methodist sect in England were very proper. You had to be formally trained in the gospel. You had to know your, your doctrines and everything. Go to and a it seminary, wasn't, yeah. Right, you had to go to seminary. And it wasn't about having these kinds of experiences. What they taught was kind of the same, but in America, it was about getting the crowd going. Over in England, it was just about preaching a good sermon. So when Brigham Young comes over there and he's like, you guys aren't having your, your born-again experience. If you haven't had your born-again experience. And so he basically started using method, his like evangelical Methodism to convert people to Mormonism. Because then when he'd get him baptized in Mormonism, in, in, I'm sorry, when he get him baptized into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, then at that moment he would tell him, you need to expect to have an evangelical moment. You know, one of these moments of just, you know, speaking in tongues, get, you know, get the tongues going, get the, and almost like it's, uh, it's Pentecostal, even though Pentecostalism doesn't start until, uh, until, you know, just, just over a hundred years ago. But this is the world that Brigham Young's living in. So when he ends up in the Nauvoo Temple, you know, they break in ceremony in the Nauvoo Temple to have dances. And so he's kind of getting this vibe of like, let's, let's do some merry making. And I kind of love that about 28 because he's, He's like, listen, if you experience it, experience it, bring it out. But if you're sorrowful, call upon the name of the Lord with supplication that your souls may be joyful. So it's just, it's, it's building a new, it's building a new modality. It's taking the simplistic things of their life and creating new meaning in it in order to get them across the plains. To comment on what you were saying about verse 27, this made me realize that this is actually quite a foreshadowing of how colonization uh, happens in the West. So, quote unquote, Mormon colonization, as distinct from um, other types of westward uh, expansion. Um, you have the California Gold Rush, you have like Oregon, you have Great Plains homesteading, 
um, a lot of these things, these were more distinctly like, I'm going to go and claim my property and I work the land and then it's mine and I get a deed to it. Or, you know, I'm going to go get rich in California or there's there's uh, this new open land in, in Oregon. Anyway, all these sort of, of concepts of, of American homesteading that, that expanded the West. The idea here, though, presented in, in 27, actually foreshadows a different way of doing it that Brigham Young leads, right? And so they come into Salt Lake, and then he starts sending people all, all over the place up north into Idaho, down south into Arizona, even all the way into Mexico sometimes, west a little bit into Nevada. And so you get all these different groups that go out and, and colonize these different places, which is a very different concept, this colonization from the conventional American West expansion of, of homesteading, right? And it's based on this, this idea more of a stewardship, and so people would get sent to do this. So my great-great-great-grandfather, he was part of a colony um, that went to a place in Nevada. And actually, at the time that they went there, it was part of the state of Utah. But then they changed the border of Nevada and Utah such that then it became part of Nevada and then they had to start paying property taxes in Nevada and they didn't want to anymore. So they just left it. They just abandoned the settlement because it wasn't um, part of, of Utah anymore. And they were beholden to some other government. And so anyway, it, it just highlights this idea that this Mormon colonization was based on a, a a little bit different premise. And so it came about in a little bit different way than we see in other places in, in the Western United States. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah, and how they spread out. Hopefully, maybe we can talk about it a little bit uh, on next episode. It'd be fun to talk about Deseret. And yeah. I, I, it's always kind of sad to me that that church history really is just basically from 1827 until 1847. And what we call church history is really just those sure. 20 years. It's Joseph it's Smith. <laughs> Joseph Smith. But we, man, we miss, you know, Brigham Young and John, how many people really know everything about Brigham Young and John Taylor and everything that happened into Wilford Woodruff and, and the whole very end of the 1800s. Little. Very little. Yeah. Very little, right? You know, that's a huge gap in our, uh, in our religious thinking because, you know, our, our DNC is really focused on, these revelations that got the church up and running, and then it just you're kind of on your own. And man, when we get out to Brigham Young, <laughs> and there's more crazy things that happen when those saints got out there to to Utah and uh, started going up to Idaho and 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 in uh, Arizona. Um, but yeah, I mean, Deseret Brigham Young was trying to create his own nation. He was trying to get his own gold coin. He sending emissaries out to actually have countries recognize language, their own language, right? It was spoken like English, but written in a completely different way. Um, the, the language of Deseret, he was really trying to nationalize his people. That project fell. I have a book of Mormon that's a reprint in Deseret, the language of Deseret. That's kind of fun. It's just a, it's, it's a worthless novel. I don't know how to read Deseret, but. <laughs> It's just, a, it's, it's just a novelty item. I believe it's a phonetic. It's a little more phonetic type of. Oh, yeah. Of oh, is it a little bit more phonetic? Yeah. So he, uh, I mean, anyone who's been up and down I-15, you know, that yeah. is carved out from Brigham Young. He right. was, you know, if you, if you know all the way down from, uh, what is it? It's uh, 
Brigham City, Brigham City to Ogden, from Ogden to, to Salt Lake, Provo, Nephi, um, Nephi to what, what it, Fillmore, Beaver, Cedar City, St. George. The, that was the wagon train coming down. And those were all, those were the cities that you would come down because Brigham Young was trying to basically create a nation where he would go down and annex the Los Angeles Harbor. And I-15, all of those cities were basically a day's dry, a wagon ride away from each other. And so that was his, that's why the Latter-day Saints are the ones that really helped form this little podunk town called Las Vegas. That was, that was on the way down there. And anyone who knows San Bernardino in California was founded by Latter-day Saints. The, the apostles who did it were later excommunicated for the whole, whole, whole ordeal. But hey, the Latter-day Saints created San Bernardino. That was, that was <laughs> yeah. part of that whole thing. And so the, you know, that whole movement was trying to create its own nation and Brigham secretly tried to keep doing that while kind of on one side, he kind of pulled a Joseph Smith on one side. He was trying to become, <laughs> hedged all his bets. he hedged all his bets, right? He was trying to become a, a state to have representation while at the same time, he's trying to set up his own country. So it's just it's such a fascinating aspect of church history, but I love, I love verse 30 because it repeats it twice in 17 and in 30. Fear not thine enemies, for they are in mine hands, and I will do my pleasure with them. You know, one of the things I, I, I love to talk about is that throughout the Doctrine and Covenants this year, there's been a lot of times where God has promised a lot of wrath and vengeance and, and stuff on the enemies of the saints. And I've studied a good bit of history, and... I've come to find that, you know, we can find meaning wherever we want to find it. Maybe we can invoke the civil war as, as the final comeuppance. But the problem for that kind of now, you know, the saints certainly did blame the civil war as God's wrathful vengeance and pouring it out upon the United States for, for in behalf of Joseph. But the problem with that approach is that it's a macro approach to a micro problem mm-hmm. that there were very specific people who, had very specific intentions towards the saints who did very specific evil deeds. And when we take macro interpretations of like national wars to show the punishment for micro deeds, that becomes problematic. And so while it, it kind of solves the anger and the angst and the, you know, the oaths of vengeance that the Latter-day Saints had to look across the plains to see the United States in, in, in a really deep bloody civil war, um, from the 1860s, we also see that all the people who really persecuted the saints, a lot of them actually succeeded in life. Um, people who were the most vitriolic against the Latter-day Saints were very successful. And and this is really gets into you know, a discussion we have more time to talk about in, the, in this episode, is the ongoing debate that we'll always be having as, as a human species is why good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. And in a lot of ways, we know from the intellectual history of the records, the religious texts that we have, this question ends up creating a lot of our constructs of hell and of heaven. Because in many ways, we cannot fathom and we cannot comprehend and we've not created a, a, an ethical system with enough complex calculus built in to be able to to analyze why Good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. Because life is unfair and unbalanced. So there has to yeah. be a second half that makes everything fair and balanced. And that's heaven and hell, right? 
and yeah. so, so that everything balances out in the right way. Yeah, which really brings us back to our one of our original points that we made, um, especially going into uh, the Book of Mormon, was this concept of justice. And I love the point that you brought up, Ben, about how you know about this idea: is there a cosmic justice, or did Jesus suffer for our concept of justice, our demands of justice? When we have those kinds of experiences and we seek for vengeance or justice on our fellow man. Is that where Christ appears on the cross to suffer those deeds for in behalf of our, our thoughts and constructs of justice? And so that's one of the things I've, I've been thinking about here is, as I've, as I've seen the pain of the saints, I've seen the trauma of the saints. I've read their stories. I've read a lot of their stories. I've read a lot of their narratives about them going across. And I, I see the way that they tried to deal with it as best they could. They incorporated oaths of vengeance, but yet they still have a kind, merciful, loving God who on the cross pleads for those who do what they do without knowing what they're doing, who pleads for those there and asks the Father to forgive, to forgive them all. Those acts of, of divine forgiveness creates a space for grace that as we seek for justice— if we choose to, we can find it in Calvary. We can find it in Gethsemane. We can find it for a God who sacrificed for our sense of justice. If there needs to be someone to suffer, Christ says, okay, I'll do it. For and in behalf of the person who you are angry at. And that's kind of hard because in a lot of ways, it's like, I don't want you to suffer. I want them to suffer. Hmm. And Jesus returns. He says, I know. But it doesn't necessarily work that way. Because in a lot of ways, we can't make sense in this life of why bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. So all you can really rely on is that I've suffered for your sense of that injustice if you turn to me. You know, really like how that actually fits so well with the next verses, because, you know, he goes on to talk about how they rejected their testimony. They've driven you out. The calamities coming upon them. Uh, they've shed innocent blood. It crieth from the ground against them. And then we get this verse 37. Therefore, marvel not at these things. Fear not yet pure. Ye cannot yet bear my glory, but ye shall behold it if ye are faithful in keeping all my words that I have given you. So, to me, this this does really, maybe hint isn't the right word, point at this idea that, you know, you may be feeling this, like you need vengeance and justice and and all this upon your enemies. But like verse 30 says, don't worry about them. I'll do my pleasure with them. You may be feeling all of this and wonder how it's possible that it can all be done. And then verse 37 says, marvel not, you're not ready to hear it. <laughs> you're not ready to understand what I'm really going to do with your enemies. You're not pure. You're not prepared 
to hear this, but you will. You'll get there. You'll see it one day. You'll understand. And uh, I just, I like how it's, it's amazing to me how verse 37 really points at that, um, at that there. So, you know, going back to the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Mm -hmm. You're not pure. You can't behold that glory. Yeah. It's still there present. Man, it just, it still pops up everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Ben, do you have anything else that stood out to you in section 136? Uh, No, I think that's, that's the core of it that uh, we discussed. Okay. Well, thank you everybody for listening. We typically take this for about uh, 90 minutes and it looks like we've done it uh, at just about uh, over 80 minutes. So this is, this might be a new kind of record. For <laughs> there were only two sections. So I guess that's the, <laughs> that's the thing. All right, everyone. Well, thank you for listening. Um, we value all your comments and feedback. Thank you everybody who, who has left feedback and comments. We see him, uh, see him places on, uh, on YouTube. We get a lot of uh, personal uh, comments that come in through the Facebook page and on posts themselves. And, uh, and their message to us. I, so I'm officially off Facebook. I've been off Facebook for about, uh, for about almost, is it going on three months, two months or three? I don't even know anymore, but, uh, people can still find me on messenger if they're, if, uh, if we're already Facebook friends, but I guess it'll be kind of hard if, uh, if, if not otherwise, <laughs> I had one friend who, who said, yeah, he's still on TikTok though. I'm like, I, I watch an occasional TikTok video and I share a TikTok <laughs> video, but painted me out to be some kind of TikTok <laughs> addict, but, uh, <laughs> Anyway, all right, appreciate everybody. Until next week, I'm Shiloh Logan. I'm Ben Peterson. Thanks for listening.